Yes, welcome once again to For and Against, where we lift the bonnet on the big issues in sport off the field of play. It's Paul Oach with you here and uh, with me once again, uh, a very good friend and colleague in Simon Johnson, another two-hander, mate. G'day, Rochi. A little bit lonely in the studio without Riles again. Uh, mm. let's, let's not make it a habit, Stephen. What's e- going on? Exactly. It's uh, outrageous. No, none Unavailable. Is, none is... <laughs> Recovered from COVID, apparently. COVID bout, exactly. Yeah, did see that rat test in the end. Yeah, Um, oh good. So hopefully uh, three strikes and you won't be out, Steve-O. In the show ahead, we'll look at the art of bridging the age gap in coaching. We'll talk to former Aussie cricketer and now coach Nathan Horitz uh, about that very matter. In the shootout, we'll discuss Major League Cricket and also how FIFA has managed to split with FIFA. Yes, you heard that correctly. We'll wrap the show up, as always, with Red Card, Yellow Card, where we take pleasure in reminding you of all the downright silly things perpetrated by our sports stars and related parties. Don't forget, get us on the socials on Twitter at For and Against. There's a little underscore on it after that, but it doesn't really matter. Just at For and Against. And on Insta, for.and.against. You ready to go, John? I'm ready, Rachi. Rearing. Let's get into it. It's an age-old challenge for coaches to get the best out of their players, and the matter of old age is is relevant with the experience required of a coach, meaning they're often many years senior than their charges. Now, so how does this age gap impact on the ability of the coach to extract the best from his or her players? And and is this generation of young players any different to any other when it comes to getting the best out of them. And of course, John, it's inevitable that, and we're going to have Nathan Horitz on the line in just a sec, but it's inevitable to, to look at the instance of Justin Langer, which we talked about when it happened. Indeed. Extremely topical, I think, Rochi. Um, and the Langer story obviously won't go away. Still very topical at the moment. But yeah, I think one of the key factors in that was this generational shift. Apparently, JL wasn't connecting in the appropriate way with the younger players in that dressing room. And for whatever reason, those older school methods just weren't resonating with mm. younger players. So it got me thinking... How do coaches deal with millennials? How do they deal with these Gen Z athletes and get the best out of the players, as you say? And the generational thing is interesting because it's not just the age gap, as, as per the intro, but there's also a, a more of a culture in the you know younger people to feel the, the right to speak up, the ability to speak up. Absolutely. And it's interesting that I said we're about to get Nathan on the line. We're not of, at all, of course. We're about to get him on Zoom, and that's a really good indication of how old I am. So Technology. joining us now on the Zoom is Nathan Horitz, former Australian cricketer, 17 tests, 59 one days to his name, and now a cricket coach. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, boys. Thank you for the introduction. Thanks for joining us, mate. Now, before we get into the topic at hand, tell us a bit about life post-cricket for you. So what have you been up to in the last decade or so? Yeah, yeah. So look, I, I probably I retired probably five or six years ago now. And uh, for me, I had a couple of years away from the game. I did a, tried my hand at real estate, did a bit of day trading on the stock market, <laughs> did a few, you know, just tried to get away from the game, to be honest. I was pretty mentally fried and then slowly got back into coaching in schools and, and helping out there. And then from there on, it just grew. Uh, I did coaching with the, the Bulls Masters up here. They do a lot of work. Uh, started to do some small school coaching and then I started my own academy about two years ago. So I do that along with coaching Queensland Fire Girls, the, the spin stuff there. So um, that's me. I, I coach now literally seven days a week and uh, it's, a, it's a good gig. We're only coaching certain hours during the day. It's not a you know, even though it's seven days, you know, it probably works out to be about 25, 30 hours a week. But uh, it's just, it's an amazing thing knowing that when you're working with a young kid, you know, you're trying to help them achieve their dream of playing for Australia. You know, like I, I think that's what I enjoy the most with working with the kids. That's brilliant, uh, Nathan. I see you also recently appointed to a gig for Ireland as well, I saw. Yeah, yeah. I recently, just only about two weeks ago now, uh, the high-performance spin bowling coach of Ireland cricket there and, you know, spin bowling coach of the men and the women and, and looking after the pathways. So pathways is like under-19s and 
you know, for me, it's probably a dream role to start my career. Uh, I, I had thought about trying to get into the high performance area of, you know, team coaching. I'd done a bit of team coaching here in Brisbane through grade cricket and I really enjoyed that aspect. Uh, but to start off talking spin bowling, and, and I think I'll be able to provide a bit of a different point of view considering, you know, my career was like a roller coaster at times. So, you know, I'll be able to provide ideas and strategies of how to overcome different things. But, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting over the other, other side of the world, to be fair. I gather the diehard supporters of the Island Cricket team are known as the Blarney Army. And so, Nathan, does that mean you'll be relocating? Yeah, so I've there for three years. So um, it's uh, moving. They've got to wait for visas, uh, but looks like it's going to be end of July. Back here for the T20 World Cup. Ireland have got qualifiers down in Hobart. Need to win two out of the three games down there to get to progress. Uh, and then just living over there and probably travel back once or twice a year and, um, you know, just really just enjoy the the challenge, to be fair. You know, look, talking spin bowling, I love doing. But also part of it as well, I like to talk the outside the game, as you know, what you guys have, have touched on already. You know, look, it's, um, it's amazing the game, what we go through as a team, you know, and, but we also deal with things so much by ourselves at the same time. I've always always found that a really challenging thing. That's um, and super exciting. Well done on, on that gig. Sounds like an amazing Thank role you. over the next couple mm. of years. So I guess to the topic at hand in relation to, you know, dealing with millennials and the younger players these days, I mean, what's what's your take on that at a, at a general level, I guess, at first? Is there a different approach that coaches these days need to be taking in order to extract the best value out of um, younger players? Look, I guess each coach is different. Each coaching style is different. JL, um, you know, his coaching style was a, was a strong coach. You know, like I played against JL and toured with JL and, you know, look, he was an intense man. He'd play a day of test cricket. And then go and do weights at night. He'd go. And he just. He just loved the game. You know. Look, he was just someone different. But I also believe what he did for Australian cricket changed where it was. You know. Look, we went through the sandpaper gates and everything like that, and it got to probably those millennials are the 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 issue. You know. Look, they disrespected the game that much. You know. And JL was able to turn it around. You know. And and people make mistakes, and everyone's moved on. But that's fine. But you know. Look, I think probably the thing these days is. It's moving on from just the one coach, you know. So the coach is, you know, really looking after the group of coaches and those people, he's making sure that they uh, can man-manage the rest of the squad. That, that's how, you know, it looks from everywhere else now. It's not just one coach, one sort of batting, helping coach, and that's it. It's, you know, about five or six coaches, and we've all got a common goal to make sure that we're getting the best out of these guys. And I don't know if you'll ever see the coach that's that rah-rah coach anymore. You know, mm-hmm. look, I don't think they will... I don't think they'll survive, you know, like even in the footy world or anything like that, you know, like you don't really, maybe NRL is different, like Bellamy and those blokes, but still they have a place in the way that they talk. Uh, but I think they've earned that respect to do what they want. But soccer, you know, like Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola and, and these blokes, they're just tactical master strokes, those guys, you know, like they're just unbelievable. So I think cricket is moving toward that, you know, like the, the tactic side of T20 cricket to test cricket to one day cricket and being able to get the best out of your side without being you know, rah, rah, I think that's where it's going. I was actually going to bring up the, the footy analogy myself, Nathan. I mean, you, there's just no – you don't get that bake anymore. You don't get the coach blaring away, just screaming, hurling abuse effectively, if not literally, at the players. That, you know, I'm old enough to remember, though, that, that sort of thing happened in the 80s, and no doubt it happened before that as well. But, you know, you just don't get that approach anymore, which is probably not a bad thing. It's almost like they've realised that you, you actually need to have your players on side in order to get what you want out of them. <laughs> Yeah, look, I think probably for me, like the, the biggest thing is, you know, when you're a coach, it's, it's it can be a, a bit of a stressful time as well because 
like at the end of the day, you just want the boys to perform or the girls to perform. You want them to, to do well. And, and when they're not, you ride that emotion at the start. And, you know, look in AFL, NRL, it's, you know, it's completely different. And, you know, and now these days, I guess also, you know, mental health is such a prevalent thing, you know, so mm. people have to be so careful with the way they talk to other people. Whereas back in the day, you know, uh, rest in peace, Andrew Simon's going to his funeral tomorrow. You know, like mm. he would never have understood if I said, mate, I'm having a bad day, mate, come mm. out, have a beer. You know, like that's how you used to deal with it back in those days. Whereas these days, you're having a bad day. If you say that to somebody, you're going to see a sports psych and you go through that whole process. And then as a coach, you probably feel, you know, you've got to evolve as a coach. You can't just be like, let your emotions out and be really aggressive at them. You know, you've got to understand, look, Nathan has, he's a different person. You know, I want to work together with him to get the best out of him, but also, you know, bring that group together. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say about um, man management or people management. I mean, you, you hear a lot about great coaches being really good at extracting the best out of different people. And I guess, you know, that's about having great EQ and working out what your team, uh, what makes them tick. Do you see any differences with the youngsters coming through these days as far as what makes them tick? I mean, I, I compare it, say, to a professional environment. We work in, you know, offices for our so-called real jobs. <laughs> and you look at the young kids who are coming through and, you know, it's a slightly different approach, isn't it? I, I certainly find in that they're looking for different things. They're expecting more. I, I don't know. Does the same apply on the on the sporting field to, to your knowledge yeah look i reckon it does a little bit because when we were coming through there obviously wasn't as much cricket to be played you know you played for australia or you played for your state there was no ipl bpl pakistan league or anything so it was just you wanted to live and die for australia whereas now you can sort of not that you pick and choose which you know tournament you want to go at they can definitely with the ipl takes precedent someone's getting 1.6 million dollars for the ipl mm. you can guarantee that if there's a, a tournament that's not as prestigious for that country those players will play in the IPL. Mm. And, and I guess that stigma of wearing, you know, the baggy green or playing for England in test cricket, not that it's died, but at that same time, it's not something that a young kid these days goes, I want to play for Australia. They might go, I want to be the best, best T20 cricketer in the world and millions and millions and millions of dollars, you know. So that's probably where the game is starting to change a little bit. You know, it's probably been the last five years. Like David Warner came through T20 cricket, you know, like mm. he's played everything and he's going to go down as one of the best openers for Australia ever. But, you know, at the same time, he's going to be remembered as one of the best T20 cricketers. So I think he's sort of done it both well in both worlds, but I reckon it's slowly drifting away from just test cricket or Australia cricket and moving more towards that T20 franchise model. I mean, the funny thing with cricket and its coaching structures, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but pre-Bob Simpson, we didn't have a cricket coach. No. It, that's none at all. He was the first Aussie cricket coach, wasn't he? Yeah. So yeah. it's been, it's been strange. Look, my first coach was John Buchanan. You know, look, and he was all about stats and data back then. You know, look, and I'd never seen stats and data when I first played. Uh, and then Timmy Nielsen was my next coach, and he was just, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, you'll do it. You know, look, I back you to do it. And you know, like he, you know, obviously had, you know, his his way of doing things, but it was a lot more structured in that way. And then JL, the way that JL was, I had Bulf as a coach, uh, and Bulf was all about enjoying the game you know, and making sure, having that belief to trust yourself and in that moment, back your skill instead of sort of, you know, going to that easier side of not backing yourself as much as you can because when you go down, like when you get hit for six or you get out, you want to go down the way that you've played and, and, and trained as hard as you can. And, and I think that's, as a coach, you just got to make sure that the player feels safe to be able to do that. You know, there's, I have a saying in cricket, like there's a lot of difference between playing reckless cricket and cricket that's, you know, what you've trusted and believed in. You know, you see all the time these guys that when they're nervous, you know, they play this shot that's just like, as a supporter, you go, well, that's one of the most random shots I've ever seen, <laughs> you know, but they go, look, I was told to be aggressive, you know, instead of like 
practicing the shot or the delivery or whatever that they've worked so hard on, they try to reverse ramp, you know, or something completely different. And then your mum or dad go, I can't believe you played that shot. You know, <laughs> like that's that's the thing I think where the, the game and, and the coaches now have to make sure that these these players coming through respect. And the, the generational thing is interesting, isn't it, when it comes to, to coaching? Because we are seeing a move to younger and younger coaching. I mean, with Andrew McDonald taking over, mm. that's a bit of a generational shift, I suppose. A more recently retired player in the AFL constantly, there's younger coaches coming through. But it's mm. not – I mean, to my mind, it's not just the younger coaches who have that ability to communicate well with the younger players. Because, I mean, you mentioned before, Nathan, you've got the, you know, the older, wily old dogs like the Wayne Bennetts in rugby league, Craig Bellamy. Alistair Clarkson, they keep, you know, for whatever reason, having phenomenal records. So they must have the ability to connect with different generations. So I'm not sure how they do it. 100%. You know, look, and obviously probably Wayne Bennett's got to be the, the guy that everyone's got to sort of take a model out of. Like I've been lucky enough to sit down beside him and have a lunch, you know, just in he was talking a little bit about coaching and it was when I was still playing. And, you know, look, he, he always, you know, like he's still speaking about the Broncos. And, and the one thing he said after he left the Broncos, he goes, I, I knew they'd always be all right because they got Lockie and Lockie can bring the side together. You know, so for, for Wayne, you know, listening to him talk, you know, was, you know, look, Wayne Bennett's never come across as a bloke that's going to be really aggressive, is he? You know, like he's going to be a bloke that's going to be pretty dour, but he's going to make sure that as a player, he backs you and he wants you to just go for it. You know, like in that uh, the All Blacks, the legacy book, you know, to go for the gap. You know, you want to be able to trust and just do it. You know, you don't want to be there playing and not do what you've been trained to do. And I, and I think that's what the best coaches do. Alistair Clarks, I'm a massive Hawks man. And, you know, look, I, I think that sort of stuff, as a player, you train you train your hardest so that when you get to the game, it's just on automatic pilot. You know, you're just there, face, block the ball, hit the ball, bowl the ball, whatever it is. And when those crucial moments come out, you just want to be able to just go for it. You know, trust that I can get this guy out or whatever. Or, you know, you don't want to be able to come off the field and, you know, get a revving because I played the wrong shot. You want to be able to just trust that you're doing the right thing and the coach has got you back. Is there much cross-pollination, Nathan, between coaches, coaching of sporting codes? I mean, And I think the subtext of the question is how much of coaching is about the skills of the game and how much of it is actually about, you know, the people management? I think, I think a large component is still about the skills of the game. You know, look, so in cricket, you know, to be able to talk technically to a player, like I don't think an AFL coach could come in. They could they could talk tactically about, you know, the, the way they were going to play the game, you know, in, in this context. But to be able to talk tactically about, you know, look, that's where they have their coaches, the batting coaches, bowling coach, fielding coach, spin bowling coach doing the job for them. So then he looks after that bit you know i can't imagine me going into as much as i love afl (laughs) i can't imagine me going into coach afl or or do anything you know so i still think the skills is a huge component but i I do believe you know there is a possibility that you would get a coach to just be not a puppet but just come across and because they're so good at what they do they might be able to look after a side that way you never know you might see it so have a following question from that is have you found yourself learning from coaches from other sports all the time look i, I listen to um a podcast the coaches the greatest coaches podcast you know look um i listen to that all the time the coaches are always on there talking about the things that they've learned and, and from their mentors you know looking and i think as a coach and you know as a, a person that's working or whatever you're always trying to improve you always want to get better at the job that you do and i'm first admit and like you guys would be as well i'm not the best at my job and even if i was i want to get better tomorrow so I'm sure there's going to be something that I'm going to learn from uh, the greatest netball coach or softball coach or 
Because at the end of the day, they're just doing the same thing. It's just in a different team environment. They're making sure that their players are going to be at their peak to perform in that moment. And when they're not, they've got to find a way that, you know, look, we're going to keep getting you better so that you're enjoying the challenge. And then when, you, when you're in that pressure moment again, all right, let's go again. Let's see what you've got. Let's see what you've learned, you know. So trying to expose them to that, I think, you know, as, as a coach for me, you know, by the time I finish coaching, I want to make sure that I'm trying to learn something new every day pretty much. Do you find, Nathan, that there's a greater role these days that's played by sports psychologists? And, and I guess particularly for the younger generation, are they more open to, you know, talking about that and having an involvement? I think a sports psychologist is a must. I played – so when I went to New South Wales after I'd been dropped from Australia and I was struggling in Queensland – I found a sports psychologist down there. His name was Gareth Mole, uh, Condor Performance. He's still really highly recognised and I worked with him for about eight years. And I still talk to him once a year, twice a year. And without him, I don't think I would have played for Australia again. You know, for me, it was when I went down there, it's like, I've got to play for Australia. It's just, I've got to get there. You know, look, for me, it was, it was like a sounding board to, you know, I had fears about playing again or anything like that. But the way that he spoke to me was just, you know, look, we break down, uh, sessions per week and then we'll break down that session into just balls per session and it didn't matter where it landed it was just look let's just keep ticking this off you know get that volume get that memory bank up do all that sort of thing and you know we start to train your brain and start to visualize all these sort of different things i've never really done before so that when i got to the the top level again i was in a lot better space mentally than what i was when i played earlier you know i was obviously very young and you know very naive but you know, for me, it was, you know, my career was all about, I've never felt good enough. You know, I never felt on top of my game, um, you know, but having Gareth there to talk to uh, was just a must. And he works with a few of my academy kids as well, you know, so, and they love just speaking to him. Uh, look, I, I have no idea what they talk about, but he just talks to them or his people talk to them just completely about other things separate from cricket as well. I mean, that's a whole other topic of conversation, sports psychology right there, and uh, uh, maybe we'll save that conversation for another time, Nathan. <laughs> but um, finally, so who do you model yourself on then as a coach? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, look, if you didn't know me when I played the game, I was incredibly emotional. Uh, you know, look, I, I was a bloke that would just wear my heart on my sleeve. Uh, as a coach, I've had a few moments being a team coach where I've been frustrated. Uh, at the boys but I think that the thing that I found was just I was so passionate and so deep into what they were trying to do and I was you know so and but what I have found is that I'm a coach that just wants to get the best out of the kids uh, and the players and I want to make sure that I want to put them under as much pressure outside of the game that I can so that when they're in the game it's just the most enjoyable experience win lose or draw they give it their all, they can walk away, you know. So to model myself and someone, look, Matty Mott was one of my first coaches. He was someone that just, he was similar to that, you know. Look, he just wanted to make sure you enjoyed the game, you know. Look, it's so challenging. It's it's one of the most, you know, playing sport is, you know, incredibly challenging. You grow up as a kid, you want to wear the green and gold. When you get there, have those bad days, it's like the end of the earth, hmm. you know. So you just want to be there to go, okay, look, yeah, that happens. It's going to happen again. You've got to understand that. But, look, let's go out tomorrow. Let's train hard. Let's get better so that when you're faced with this again, we know what we can do. And then it's just a tickle cross in my eyes. We go, okay, tickle cross. We didn't execute. All right, let's just keep going. Let's keep striving because the more that you can sort of, like Gareth said, the more that you can just sort of keep that roller coaster going and just that nice, easy plane like that instead of up and down like that, the game becomes easy. It's not easy, but it comes easier. 
it's sort of, you know, you're just trusting muscle memory and that's that's who I sort of model myself on. Mm, fair enough. Well, look, uh, Nathan, really enjoyed watching you play and uh, good luck in your coaching career or your continued coaching career, but um, unless Ireland become a particular threat against Australia in the next World Cup. <laughs> good luck that, in that's Ireland. That's the goal. That's, that's the dream, <laughs> isn't it? You know, play against Australia, so that'll be cool. Thank you very much. Uh, good luck to you. So, Nathan Horrocks there taking us through the art of the coach. On to the shootout now where we uh, cover a few more topics in a shorter fashion. Cricket in the United States in particular. So in the land of the major leagues, it should come as no surprise there is a major league cricket. Now, albeit it's somewhere behind the reach of Major League Baseball, as you'd imagine. Well, so beginning in 2023, Major League Cricket will be America's first ever professional cricket league, and they're running a 2020 league. Now, that's following a healthy injection of funds led by none other than Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. Really? Who I believe is of subcontinental extraction. Wow. Mm. It's extraordinary, isn't it? So there's an initial investment of 44 mil, and this is US dollars, obviously, with a further commitment of 76 mil, over the next 12 months. So, you know, over a very short space of time, we're looking at 120 large USD, and it's going to allow the league to build stadiums and training centres, as well as help the US host global cricket events, is what they're aiming for over the next decade, which isn't as silly as it sounds in the context of the US having a crack at uh, the Rugby World Cup at some stage, a little while down the track. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's just so much money in cricket, isn't there, generally speaking? A lot of it obviously arising out of India. I mean, I think the Knight Riders group, the owners of the IPL Kolkata Knight Riders, they're investing about $30 million to build a cricket stadium in Southern California. Mm -hmm. So heaps and heaps of money. And it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you look at America and you look at the demographics there, the Indian immigrant population is the second largest immigrant population in the US okay. behind um, Mexico mm-hmm. uh, and ahead of China and the Philippines. So, you know, a massive, highly educated population of Indians who live in the US who love their cricket. Mm. I know our um, on-sabbatical panellist, Dave mm. Gill, talks about you know him being over in the US working for his tech company over there and you know jumping in taxis and you know, talking to people about uh, cricket and how passionate they are. And, yeah, I, I think it makes sense. Mm. In a country as big as the US with 300, 350 million people, even if you're niche, you're still pretty big, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, they have their own TV station over there on Willow TV, which is, um, you know, you wouldn't think of a cricket, a 24-hour cricket station. Willow TV. Willow That's TV, great. exactly, yeah. So there's, you know, I, I wonder whether the the fandom in US, well, I presume, sorry, the fandom in the US is is confined to the colonies, the, the emigrants from the colonial, the old colonies kind of thing. It's the type of sport, though, that I reckon will appeal to the US. I mean, it, it's quick, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's two and a half hours. 2020, true. It's all, Let's call it three. It's but, yeah. all action. I mean, if you think about baseball, and I know they, mm-hmm. they love their baseball over there, but it goes for so much longer, you don't see as many home runs. Think about how many sixes or fours you see mm-hmm. in a cricket game could see that it potentially could take off there. They've got the razzmatazz, which you love, of course, Rochie, oh, all of yeah, the, the extra yeah. fireworks oh. and the music yeah, and all of that. Yeah, wow, mm. can't hear. Yeah, exactly. It's a good point. I mean, but I think, isn't it the case that more and more sport is sort of driven by personalities? Like, you got to get behind the personalities. So I think that'll be a big part of how the game develops as to whether they can develop personalities. And, and indeed, whether or not they're trying to get a toehold in the general population or whether they're just happy, keeping happy, the, uh, the emigrant population from, as I say, the old colonies. Oh, no, I'm sure they'll want to get a toehold with you know a wider audience than that. There's no doubt about that. I wonder if they'll adopt the approach that they took with the soccer when it, when it first hit 
US, you know, they made sure they signed up some really big names. So mm. David Beckham, obviously big in football, but he was a big personality. Mm. It's hard to think about who is the equivalent cricket personality that would have cut through mm. over in the US. In the but, States. but they'll find someone, I'm sure. And otherwise, I'm sure they'll have a bunch of US athletes who they'll have as, you know, sponsors of the tournament who will mm. go to the games and, and promote it by, you know, their very presence in being there. Maybe you need a KP to sign up or a Bravo, <laughs> Dwayne Bravo or, um, you know. Kevin Peterson will be there. Larger than life kind of personality. the opening of an envelope. He'll Jeez, be there. What sure. a shame Wardy's not still around. Now, um, there's been a big change in the world in sports video gaming. With the long-running and deeply symbiotic relationship between FIFA and EA Sports, and in particular their FIFA title, coming to an end. FIFA has dumped FIFA. No. Yes. Now, so there must be good reason for this because there are literally billions of dollars being put at risk. And I spent some time trying to get to the bottom of how it happened and whether or not we had a winner. Are you across this at all, John? Are you familiar with this at all? Not, not really, Rochi, no. I mean, I used to play a bit of FIFA well, back was, in the day. That was my next question. Just a little bit. Yeah, back yeah. In, the, in the lounge rooms of our of our friends. Yeah, absolutely. Back I think it's in Surrey Hills. It's been going for something like 30 years, Yeah, uh, this this relationship. And it, it's, it's an interesting one because it started out, as I understand it, with EA Sports needing a bit of publicity. And I think that some other company had the relevant license to maybe the World Cup itself. And so EA Sports rather cleverly went, well, look, let's just get the name FIFA on there right. to make everyone realise that this is a soccer game. Fairly good idea. Mm. And the beauty of it was it didn't really cost anything because FIFA didn't really give them access to anything. They didn't own clubs. They didn't own competitions. Mm. So for a relatively small fee, they actually got the name FIFA on the game, which made everyone go, oh, okay, I know what this is. Before FIFA, the organisation, realised how much money you could make. I think so. Well, I th- and I think this is where it's come to because FIFA, the organisation, <laughs> they've asked for something like $300 million to, mm. re- to, set up, to re-license. And I think the licensing period goes for a few years. So I suppose all good things must come to an end, but uh, eventually yeah. the, the two parties have decided they can't they can't manage uh, to live with each other. And I think, too, is this interesting where changes in technology have come into play, too, because I gather from looking into it that the EA Sports FIFA can see potential in, in cryptocurrency in, in, or NFTs in particular, yep. um, whatever they are. I'm still trying to get my head around them, we'll I've got to say. One day. We need Riles here to, to tell us. I had a good hour sit down with a, a guy who's a player agent for a sport that's prominent in Australia and he was telling me about you know the, the potential for his players and all this stuff. I'm, I'm still... It's, it's not so much I don't get the technical side, it's that I don't get why. Why, why, yeah. What's the appeal? When you could have the real thing? Yeah. Just not sure. Maybe. But anyway, look, that's, that, there's a market there. Um, but we digress. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a – it's an end of an era, to use an expression, I suppose. The fact that a sporting organisation and this massive gaming company who've both made millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars for each other – Headed to the divorce courts? I think so. I think it's amicable on the, on the whole. But, right. um, yeah, I think EO Sports wants a bit more from the relationship. Right. And now from the It's Not Sport But We Like It file, if you're a regular listener of the show, you would, uh, you'd know that uh, you're, you'd be aware of the world of lawnmower racing, given we uncovered this phenomenon in the US a little while ago. Remember talking about that, John? I, I do, yeah. A little yeah. while ago, wasn't I mean, it? This, this is a sport that's made for you, isn't it? Oh, mate, totally. Backyard This is racing. perhaps why I'm bringing it up again, because you won't be surprised to learn that it's also present in Australia. I've just discovered. Right. Off the back of, um, what was it called? The All-Australian Ride-On Mower Racing Championship in Forbes the in New South Wales. A-R-O-L-M-R-A. <laughs> I'll take your word for that, mate. Now, to recap, you take a ride-on lawnmower and you soup it up. And that's kind of it. So top race spec mowers will hit 100 kilometres an hour on these dirt tracks How's they race the, on. Uh, suspension on that and the, the grip? Oh, look, time did not permit a full exploration of the technical uh, regulations, Jono. 
but you know your lawn's in good hands when you're able to pull an opposite lock power slide in the contraption originally intended to cut your lawn. Not sure what that is, but it sounds pretty cool. Trust me, it's pretty cool, yeah. So I, I, I'm not too sure, General. I, I don't think there's a lot of modification required because I did find myself getting on YouTube to research this uh, this story oh, yeah. a little bit more and watching quite a number of clips of watching lawnmowers go round and round and round. Do they, do they wear helmets? <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it looks dangerous. It genuinely right. looks dangerous. I mean, it's four-wheel bike riding. I mean, yeah. I raced go-karts when I was a young fellow, as you might recall, Jono, and the, the real deal. And you've got a bit of structure around mm. you. You don't have a seatbelt on. And lower centre of gravity. Absolutely. Big thing. Big thing. Much lower centre of gravity. But, yeah, and the, no seatbelt because the theory is if you get in something bad enough, you're actually better than flip clear. Yeah, yeah, sure. And same with the lawnmowers. But, yeah, much higher centre of gravity. Yeah. And, Roche, is pace. It, I mean, you may not know the answer to this, but it, how, how does one judge it? Is it just speed or is it the quality of the cutting of the lawn oh, as well? Oh, no, no, this is no, never mind speed. the lawn. The lawn's gone. Oh, the lawn's this gone. This is just racing. So there's no rotor mowing the lawn. No, no, time. no, no. Oh. Sorry, we've, we've moved on from that. This is post-modern, <laughs> this is post-modern lawnmower racing. <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> racing, that's the point. <laughs> Going fast. Okay. On the cheap. Apparently it like, costs a 1000 bucks or something. Right. So I don't know where the next edition of the All-Australian Ride-On-Mower Racing Championship is, but I think I might give it a go, Jono. Please, I'll look out. I'll look for you on YouTube. Uh, now, red card, yellow card, where we enjoy uh, picking apart the misdemeanors of sporting types across the world and point out the errors of their ways and have a little bit of a chuckle. Jono, what have you got for us uh, today? Yeah, look, um, I've researched long and hard, Richie, and this nomination combines two of my favourite subjects, mm. golf uh, yes, and the law. Fantastic. Golf and the law. It actually sounds like a subject I studied at uni many years ago. Pretty didn't, close. Did you do a paper on something? Uh, it was sports law, I oh, think. Okay. But yeah. Perfect. Similar. So anyway, recently in the US, a complaint was filed in the Supreme Court of New York uh-huh. against the Golden Bear, Jack Nicholas. Oh, yes. Now, who you no doubt are going to ask me is suing the golf legend? Mm-hmm. Well, it's Nicholas Companies, LLC. That's right. It's Nicholas v. Nicholas. Like Kramer versus Kramer. Very similar, I'm sure. So it's, <laughs> it turns out this is a stoush that has been brewing for years. Apparently Jack, back in 2007, yeah. was paid $145 million Ooh. to provide his exclusive services to the Nicholas companies. So exclusive services such as designing courses, promoting certain tournaments, and promoting his image the Golden Bear. It sounds like he's got a very clever accountant to me. Hey, Jack, here's your personal entity, here's your company yeah. entity, and we're just going to shuffle a whole lot of money, like 145 large. Well, apparently Jack has been up to no good in the last few years, and oh. there's been uh, letters of demand flying left, right, and centre. When you say up to no good, you mean from a, a marital kind of thing? Or? No, 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 no. No, I'll, no, no, I'll tell you. So he, he's, he's alleged a number of breaches, including, for example, promoting competing tournaments. So there are a couple of... In Saudi Arabia? Well, that was one of the issues for Oh, really? So apparently he, before Phil Mickelson was involved, um, was approached by the Saudis and Nicholas Inc. talked him out of doing that, saying that that would do untold harm to his image and also the Nicholas company's image. By extension, the company. This is one of the breaches that has been alleged against him. So it's been filed in the last couple of weeks. So look, for my part, it's a tentative yellow nomination Mm. for Jack, but obviously... Now, if I'm wrong about this and he's successful in his defence of the mm. litigation, then the nomination will be withdrawn mm. and I'll be watching this space very carefully. It's, it's certainly worthy of raising, John. I mean, let's give a yell out of Jack for the moment for breaching, because he's the one being accused of breaching he the is, contract. He's right? the defendant. Yet to, yeah. be, yet to be found. But yeah. um, 
how bizarre. Indeed. The company suing the individual. That's that's can't that be good for me. the brand. You wouldn't have thought. It can't be good for a lot of things. So Canadian Grove Bennett, who is the son of a 1970s ice hockey star of the same name, got involved with Ice Hockey Australia after his arrival in Australia in 2017. And indeed, in September 21, he was appointed board director and then president of Ice Hockey Australia. And a few months later, he had he, uh, he actually went ahead and created a new position for himself, that of CEO. And indeed, was appointed to that position without a recruitment process of any sort whatsoever. The problem is, in that process, or in lack of a process, there's obviously a lack of uh, due diligence being done by Ice Hockey Australia. And it's a shame because it turns out that Mr. Bennett left behind millions of dollars of debt when he decamped to Australia on a one-way ticket from Canada yeah. in 2017. Tut, tut. So according to Canadian bankruptcy records, he owes a vast number of creditors, about $3 million Canadian, which is, for the sake of simplicity, pretty much one-to-one Australian dollar. hundred grand on his credit card, and the tax office is after a million bucks. Due diligence wasn't done, Richie. It wasn't. Bennett, a self-described high-performance coach, now runs a tennis academy in outer suburban <laughs> Melbourne. <laughs> As you do. Ouch. So the card is as much as for IHA as uh, as Mr. Bennett, but it does, I know we're not supposed to be serious in this segment, but it does sort of highlight the challenges that some of these smaller sports do face in their in their governance and their structure. They don't have the resources to, um, and, then, and perhaps ice hockey in Australia being smitten by a Canadian for whom that's mm. a national sport have gone, oh, you're Canadian, you must know what you're doing. So yeah, yellow card to both Mr. Bennett and also ice hockey. Not a good outcome Australia. for either. Correct, correct. And with the end of Red Card, Yellow Card, that brings us to the end of another show of For and Against. So, Jono, thanks as always for your company. Thanks, Rochi. Great to be here. And uh, it's goodbye from me, Paul Roach. We certainly hope to have Mr. Riley both healthy and his schedule in place for the next show. Uh, But until such time, it's goodbye for now. (laughs) 